Thank you so much uh, for joining us here this evening. And uh, my only role is to say welcome and to say thanks to Anna Kitko for coming and sharing your brilliance with us and uh, challenging us and uh, bringing the truth to us as best you can. So um, we just want to encourage you to uh, make yourself at home. I know a lot of you are a part of our church and quite a number of you are not. Either way, we're really, really glad that you are here. And also let you know that um, after Anna has shared for a while, there will be a time for Q&A, correct? Correct. There will be time for Q&A. And that will happen at these two positions where you can see the microphone stands are and you can line up um, as you have questions. And we're trying to be as COVID conscious as we possibly can. We know we've got people coming from different setups and different sets of expectations. So we're just going to try to play by all the rules to be as comfortable uh, for uh, whoever the highest concern may be in the group, we want to be welcoming all. So um, with regards to that, if you won't, please grab the microphone, but instead um, just approach the microphone, give it a little bit of distance. That'll maybe help people feel a little bit more comfortable. And we hope that, speaking of feeling comfortable, if you do have questions, you will not hesitate at all. Um, If you would, make Anna feel welcome. Put your hands together. Thank you for coming. All right, church family. I know most of y'all, so, and you know me, and we've been doing this for about three years now, so we can handle topics that are a little bit more heated, like politics. I know that's an understatement. We'll get there. Um, Tonight is complicated because we are pursuing, instead of dialogue like normal, we're actually pursuing what's called dialectic, which means we're going to be entering a realm of mutual vulnerability. I am going to be trying to articulate genuinely difficult concepts that carry a ton of emotion behind them. And the idea is that I can separate those ideas from me and hang them out in the room. And you also can separate any ideas from you and hang them out in the room. And so we're discussing ideas and not people. I am also going to be using real examples so my slides are not made up. I don't want you to think that any of them are artistic renderings. They're things that actually occurred. So if any of it affects you personally or you've seen it before or you feel that little bit of a gut punch, I want you to give me time to just finish because it matters the whole picture before we start picking it apart. Does that make sense? Okay. Alrighty, it is Rosh Christie Community Night once again where we practice apologetics together as a family tackling the depths of Christianity's theological history and practices with particular attention paid to orthodoxy. That's what we normally practice. Orthopraxy, and then orthopathy. That may be a new one for us. Uh, Don't get caught up on the vocabulary. I'm just trying to expose us to theological language. And I always explain it, don't I? As well as responding in real time to where God has ordained that we function in time and space, 21st century America. We're not here by accident. You're not the chance result of planetary collision or primordial ooze. You are not just a bald ape. You're the very image of God, and you've been tasked to bear that image well right now. And your specific iteration of design is not an accident either. Why is it so critical that we get back to in-person church as quickly as we can when all this pandemic craziness settles? Why not just keep church digital forever now that we know how to do it and it's so convenient? Well, because you can't consecrate the screen you also watch Netflix on. Because you can't physically bear with others the burdens of their hearts exclusively via Instachat. 
But even for these reasons, as critical as they are, are not the most important reason. The foundational reason is because part of your specific design is that you possess an ability to edify your surroundings simply by functioning as you within the sanctification framework. You have value in the body of Christ that is exclusive to you and that cannot be replaced. Because church is not the landing point for us to get a dose of spiritual drugs to get us through the week. The church is a body. And that means we need each other to function healthily because when you become a Christian, your old self dies and you're born again with a new identity. An identity with no qualifiers. Christian, plain and simple, a sibling in the family of God. Now, if you are a non-Christian in the audience tonight, unlike some of our previous nights, you will be experiencing a family discussion, meaning that clarifications and distinctions being drawn, and in some cases, outright discipline of error, doesn't really apply to you. But given the amount of people claiming to be Christians in our country and their potential for exercising their civic duties in the voting box, I'm certain you'll be aware of how those decisions will affect legislation in our country contingent on where they fall on the spectrum of options that we'll be looking at tonight. So hang in there, okay? You'll notice also my hair's in a bun. From previous nights, you'll recall that that means we're getting down into the nitty-gritty or particularly difficult subject matter for me. Okay, so bear with me as we move through this stuff. It's genuinely complicated in a lot of ways. It's genuinely not complicated in others. I have to give you a ton of background information in order for us to set our minds straight on how to organize our emotional reactions to this content, and I'm including myself here. Because tonight's discussion marries the two cardinal discussion sins of our culture, religion and politics. There are certain topics that we cannot touch without it being immediately heated. And it's an understatement, the understatement of the century, perhaps, for me to call our nation's current political polarization simply heated. In fact, most of the historical things we're going to be discussing tonight find their origin in responding to current political movements still happening right now. Be that as it may, I'm going to ask you here at the outset to try and separate yourself from any alternative label that you wear with regard to your personal identity, except the label Christian. What I mean by this is that when someone asks you to describe yourself, if there are any qualifiers you put in front of the word Christian in that self-description, I want you to mentally take those labels and whatever they mean to you, and I want you to leave them outside of those doors just for our thought experiment, okay? Because tonight's thought experiment requires a cleaning and organizing of our minds and a hyper-focus on fundamentals. If we can keep the plain things plain, and if we can keep the inescapable duties of Christianhood in front of us at all times, then organizing all of these competing ideas and emotions of the current political climate of our age and how these ideas and emotions land for us personally will be so much easier. After all, isn't the best way to describe our nation's predicament and the seepage of that predicament into the church a war of competing identities? What are you? A gay Christian? A black Christian? A progressive Christian? A conservative Christian? A woke Christian? For some of us, when I asked the question, what are you, the first thing that came to mind was a political party. Christianity didn't come to mind at all. For some of us, we bristle at the mere suggestion that it's even possible to remove the qualifiers that come before Christian. 
And the reason is that American cultural norms have made personal identity sacred. You're not allowed to remove qualifiers because they are unchangeable and they define you. Our culture is preaching that our skin color, our upbringing, our sexual preferences, politics, socioeconomic class, education, place of birth, you name it, informs and sets the boundaries for understanding our Christian identity. And that by necessity, the label Christian comes secondary to those other labels. Christian, in fact, is defined by those other labels. But that's not what Christianity teaches. And that's never been what Christianity taught. Our identity in Christ is all-consuming. The Christian identity is in and of itself the metric by which all other identities are held accountable. We interpret, discipline, limit, and apply all of our other identities through the lens of our Christian one. It is the end-all and final arbiter of how our other identities are expressed to those around us as well as how we view ourselves in the privacy of our own minds. Any identities that could be ascribed to us in any iteration bow the knee to Christ. The reason we're not to make distinctions in identity within the framework of the church is because there aren't supposed to be any distinctions. We all have the same identity. The reason there isn't a black church and a white church is because there isn't a black savior and a white savior. We all go to the exact same Jesus in the same heaven. And for our loved ones and neighbors who insist they do not desire our Jesus, the place where they will go when they die doesn't distinguish between skin colors there either. So is it any wonder then to observe that since we in this cultural environment, struggling to come to terms with this rapidly advancing identity cult threatening to unseat the entire point of dying to ourselves and being raised anew in Christ, and knowing that our political ideology is an outgrowth of our religious beliefs, find ourselves completely at a loss as to what to do when faced with political decisions that are immeasurably more complicated? How should a Christian vote in America, for example? Which political party is the Christian one? If we think one presidential candidate is really bad and the other one is also bad, but hopefully a little less bad, then don't we have to choose between the lesser of two evils? We watch on social media as members of our congregations debate whether or not Jesus was a socialist. We watch others Photoshop MAGA hats on him instead. All of whom are convinced that if you're a real Christian, you will be compelled to do the same. So how did we get here? How could members of the same body be at such great odds with each other? I'd like to suggest to you that one of the issues amongst several that we'll be focused on tonight is that for some of us, in response to the identity insanity that we are being browbeaten with, has been a well-intended elevation of yet another qualifier in front of the word Christian. And that is the label American. And even if this isn't done verbally, I see it being done through certain attitudes and responses by members of the body. And like all qualifiers, innocent and well-meaning descriptors tacked on to Christianity begin as something tame, but rapidly in congruence with the reality of sin becomes dangerous over time. Hence, the questions we have been receiving both here at RC as well as in amongst the church. Hence, tonight's topic. So now that you know why this topic was chosen, say a prayer for me and let's consider some frameworks that have been an undercurrents both in American culture at large as well as within the context of the church. I really think that considering each of these puzzle pieces will help us get a grip on what's going on so that we can respond accordingly. The difficult part here though is that we are dealing with movements of ideas that don't necessarily have formal definitions. They're movements of mood 
and of ideas and of attitudes and emphasis. So as I tack on names to these movements, I need you to know that they are simply placeholders for clarity so that you can follow me mentally. The public figures and the corpus of their work within these issues that I am going to give as examples may never refer to themselves by the labels I'm going to use. The labels are my suggestion. They're not formalities. And you'll understand what I'm getting at in a minute. The first thing we need to talk about is the fact that we are living in a post-Christian era. Our cultural norms are sourced in Judeo-Christian values, but they're taken for granted or have lost sacred meaning. We're living in a world where there's Christianity proper, the things we talk about on nights like this, the official teachings of Christianity through its history and the expectations God has for those he calls his own, regardless of what setting they're in, and the population that lives those expectations out. That's Christianity proper. And then we have Christendom, or cultural Christianity. These are the things that, we've, that have become social or, social or cultural norms that are shared across many different faiths, but whose source was Christian originally. Things like going to church on Easter, even though you don't believe in God and you want your, to please your grandmother. Things like placing your hand on a Bible to swear the truth before giving testimony, regardless of what the witness's actual religious belief is. Things like praying before a session of Congress. Things like a six-day work week. It's the going through the motions that are identifiably Judeo-Christian, but there's no depth of meaning behind them sort of thing. In God we trust, but the God to whom they refer is left vague. Understand what I'm getting at? Fine. If you're a philosophy kid, then Jean-Jacques Rousseau's social contract should be coming to mind. 15 years before America became a nation, Rousseau's work was published covering study after study of previous successful empires and what they shared in common. And what Rousseau observed is that these empires always possessed a civil religion, meaning that there was always some set of beliefs that served to cement a society together and unify the state. These elements include some type of deity, the notion of an afterlife, a justice system that, re that rewards virtue and punishes vice, as well as an overall tolerance of religious pluralism. So for instance, take the Roman Empire. Their civil religion included the deification of the emperor, the notion that one will have a consciousness in the afterlife contingent upon one's behavior here on earth, a justice system that functioned to perpetuate Roman concepts of virtue, and limitations on vice-oriented behavior, as well as the ability to practice whatever religion you wished, so long as when asked, you gave the emperor his due merit as divine. Which is one of the reasons why Christianity, of course, was persecuted in the Roman Empire, because they refused to do that last one. Rousseau observed that there were shared behaviors within that civil religion as well. Things like the generic quoting of religious texts by political leaders on public occasions the invocation of a generic god at the dedication of public monuments or during political speeches, the veneration of past political leaders, the use of political leaders to teach moral ideals, the veneration of veterans and casualties in nations' wars, religious gatherings called by political leaders, use of religious symbols on public buildings. You're getting the idea. So why does this matter for our discussion? Remember, I'm giving you the puzzle pieces I believe are involved in sorting out our mental space when it comes to members of Christianity proper engaging in politics. So for this puzzle piece, I am going to suggest that for the empire we find ourselves in currently, that our civil religion looks an awful lot like Christianity, even though it isn't. 
the ease with which genuine Christians trying to piece together what their civic duty might look like is high here because the line between true Christianity and American civil religion has been historically a hair's breadth apart. The cement that holds our society together and unifies the state has been traditionally very Christian looking. The symbols and the prayers have been familiar. The virtues that we have focused on in our justice system have been traditionally commandments four through eight of the Ten Commandments. The prayers said at the dedication of public monuments utilize familiar vocabulary whether the person speaking is a Christian or not. My point being, when civil religion is a warped mirror image of our own, it's easy to confuse the two and it's even easier to forget that there is a distinction there that must remain clear. A distinction that is becoming wider and wider and increasingly more evident the further the civil religion reflects the religious preferences of our day, which is what successful empires do. When our founding fathers brilliantly sifted through previously successful civil religions, they kept what they believed would work and threw out what they already knew wouldn't. And Judeo-Christian values are extremely pragmatic for a new republic emphasizing individual liberty. Judeo-Christian values are not pragmatic when it comes to the issue of sovereignty, however. The acknowledgement of a specific sovereign, be it a heavenly one or an earthly one, was unacceptable to the colonists who had just rejected their king. Hence, the birth of Enlightenment philosophy dressed in the favorite fashion of 1700s America, Christianity. The American civil religion reflects what is seen as most cohesive for the society it serves and for the function of the state and the success of the state's endeavors, which is not necessarily going to remain appearing Christian if Christianity falls out of fashion as the cohesive agent amongst the people. And I think I'm not exaggerating when I say, and fall out of fashion it is doing, and rapidly. Okay, so for puzzle piece number one, driving the mood and attitudes of believers. I am suggesting that many of us, myself included, habitually conflate actual Christianity with American civil religion because historically they've appeared so similar and it's been a long enough period of time for memories to be foggy that there is indeed a distinction there. We should expect the civil religion to reflect the culture of our day and the culture of our day is increasingly and alarmingly anti-Christian. Which brings us to puzzle piece number two. How are Christians responding to the threat that the most comfortable political climate we've ever experienced in any society for the history of the church supposed to respond? We don't want to be ungrateful for this gift. Our loved ones have given their lives to maintain this gift. How could we possibly not fight for the freedoms we've come to enjoy? And what precisely does fighting and gratitude and to further the American ideals elsewhere in the world so that others can enjoy them, supposed to look like? Are we supposed to work and focus on making the government a Christian one? Well, for some believers, yes, that's precisely what we're supposed to do. And in the lifetime of every single person in this room, that is what an entire swath of the Christian population has been working toward on all sides of the denominational spectrum. If you haven't heard the words I'm about to use before, that's all right, because you have definitely run in circles where these beliefs have been promulgated, but not necessarily by name. This movement is called Christian Reconstruction, or in most cases, Dominionism. 
Remember, don't get caught up on this vocabulary. I'm throwing big words out there for you to simply see. I don't expect you to memorize them. I am trying to expose you to these concepts so that you can identify them for yourselves when you're out and about and considering your own theological paths. Dominionism is the argument that if God gave his people dominion over creation to subdue it, then there is a biblical mandate for Christians to occupy and control all secular institutions. Or to put it succinctly, take over the world beginning here at home. For the dominations on the, call it, Presbyterian side of the spectrum, the discussion was centered around theonomy. Theos meaning God, namos meaning law or the belief and focused emphasis on that the judicial laws of the Old Testament should be observed by modern societies. In the 1980s, several prominent theologians came out in favor of this position, arguing that if every part of the human experience is touched by sin, then even one's thoughts are affected by sin, and that means human knowledge is tainted by sin. The only way to have true knowledge is by running our thoughts through the lens of scripture as it is the only source we have for knowledge that is not tainted by sin. This means that all non-Christian knowledge is sinful and invalid, and this means any institutions failing to utilize Christian knowledge are sinful and invalid. This means that our government needs to reflect Christian knowledge and the final conclusion being that this means that Christian supremacy should be the civic duty of all Christians. In particular, the works of Rush Rushduni became widely circulated in these circles due to his emphasis on the reinstitution of capital punishment for things like homosexuality, adultery, public blasphemy, the list goes on. From the theonomist perspective, the American Constitution should be used as the vehicle through which biblical law is implemented. On the other side of the denominational spectrum, the Pentecostals also in the 1980s sprouted their own version of this dominion theology called Kingdom Now. Instead of focusing on the penal codes, they instead focused on spiritual warfare, arguing that God has been looking for humans to help them renew the world since the fall, since God called these people apostles and prophets, and since the Apostle Paul seemingly outlines five ministry categories and their hierarchy in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, well, then we should be looking for apostles and prophets doing the same thing now. And if the body of Christ will yield in submission to their ruling apostles and prophets, then these individuals will take control of the kingdoms of this world. Kingdoms they interpret as seven spheres of influence, as opposed to physical nations, per se. And if you've been trained in fivefold ministry thinking or the seven mountain mandate, this is where this comes from. The point being that this theology focuses Christian civic duties toward the aim of conquering each kingdom, one of which is the government. So, no matter where you are personally and where you focus yourself denominationally, you've been exposed to these thoughts because the functional conclusion of this school is, if you're serious about being a Christian, then you have a mandate to be theocratically visioned. And for the way you engage your civic duties to employ that vision, it is an emphasis on American Christians' sin being a failure to actively promote America as a Christian nation. When you head onto social media and you see these interviews from citizens decrying the notion that there are all these Christians out there who are trying to turn America into a theocracy, those fears are warranted. Christian Reconstruction has that precisely in mind. 
And when entire swaths of people dress up in Handmaid's Tales uniforms to protest certain legislation that Supreme Court nominees, for example, that they believe are going to use their civic duty to bring about this change, we should not immediately respond by rolling our eyes. Yes, in most ways they are confused in that not all Christians view the world this way. But at the same time, their suspicion of moves to unify the church and the state are not without merit. There are a lot of folks who are very concerned over these movements, both within the church and without. Which brings us to puzzle piece number three. Is there an alternative if we're not persuaded by the arguments coming from the theonomists, dominionists, or the kingdom now adherents? Well, yes, there is. There is no overarching formal name for what I'm about to explain, though, so I'm going to call it dual citizen emphasis to try to keep things clear. Throughout the history of the church, there has been a repeated theme for explaining how Christians are to see themselves. For Augustine in the fifth century, for example, the imagery used to explain this was two cities, Rome or the New Babylon, which symbolizes everything worldly, perishable, and man-made, like ruling governments. And then there's Jerusalem, the city of heaven, which symbolizes the eternal community of Christ. And since we Christians are living at a time between Jesus having redeemed mankind, but not yet come back to bring about the end of the age, we Christians live in a mixture of the two cities because there are citizens of heaven interspersed in perishing man-made nations, all of whom have different functions personally, but all of whom have the same duties corporately to make disciples of all nations and all peoples. We are to consider ourselves ambassadors for a kingdom that is not of this world to the kingdoms of this world in whatever nation we find ourselves in at the moment. But notice I said to the nations and not for the nations. This was an important clarification for Augustine because he was writing to console Christians in the Roman Empire who were being blamed for its recent fall. Only three years earlier, Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths and the, emperor, and the empire was left in a state of shock. Jerome, that guy we talked about in the last Rosh Christi Community Night that was doing all the manuscript documentation in the West, he witnessed this event. Who would believe that Rome built up by the conquest of the whole world had collapsed, that the mother of nations had become also their tomb, he said. You see, people were blaming the Christians for failing to bulwark the state in a way that Roman civil religion had handled things throughout its non-Christian history on the one side. And then on the other side, the Christians were arguing amongst themselves whether or not God was punishing them for having become lazy, proud, and blasphemous amongst their own ranks. Was not Rome and Christianity the same now? How could Christianity flourish if there was no longer a comfortable place for Christianity to have a home base and a government that protected it to keep it safe? Augustine consoled their grief by reminding them of the distinction between our permanent citizenship in a nation not of this earth and that we would eternally reign, and the alternative that, that we're not really citizens of the nation we find ourselves in, not really, and that all nations of the earth would pass away. And not only that, but any influence in, in future nations that forgot this distinction would be reminded when they also pass away. Because what Augustine was attempting to do was dissuade Christians of this time from conflating national Christianity with Christianity within a nation. 
A millennia later, so too, Martin Luther would give us a reiterated version of Augustine. Only Luther would use two kingdoms instead of two cities to illustrate this distinction. The first kingdom of this world is the common kingdom, or creation in general. A kingdom filled with sinful mankind, filled with every nation state of the world still working under the law. In this first kingdom, mankind, using reason and their will, works under natural law to perform outward appearances of righteousness. And what I mean by this is that the people, and consequently the nations at large that represent them, give lip service to moral universals, but do not recognize nor submit themselves to the Bible or the working of the Holy Spirit. It is for this reason that the sword is needed, as these nations are constantly at war with each other, consumed with their own advancement. This is why Luther argues there are verses in the Bible counseling Christians to buy a sword and be prepared to protect themselves. This is also why there are verses exhorting Christians to be reminded that God is sovereign even over the rulers of these nations and that they are to submit to their ruling authorities insofar as those ruling authorities do not encroach on the work of the church because the orderliness of governance is there to help promote and encourage the peace of the first kingdom. After all, is it not true that as image bearers of God, whether they're believers or not, humanity is equipped with an innate understanding of how to carry out these tasks? And it is this great mercy of giving humanity an intrinsic understanding of how life ought to be that restrains evil behavior in a fallen world. God's mercy is so great that even in rampant disobedience and idolatry that he moves and works even the rebellion toward general order of our social spheres, everything from politics to economics. It is for this reason that Christians, therefore, are not to engage in anarchy, for example. It is the reason that we are not to break speeding limits or cheat on our taxes, for example. Which brings us to the second kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, or the kingdom of grace, the kingdom to which all true Christians belong, the kingdom that does not need the sword and by which verses in the scriptures calling for passivity in the face of oppression, like the Sermon on the Mount, belongs. In this second kingdom, we wage spiritual and intellectual war by tearing down arguments of the mind, as Paul reminds us, and spreading the gospel. Luther uses this two kingdoms model to understand, therefore, the relationship between the church and the state. The temporal first kingdom, the state, has no authority, nor will it ever have authority, in matters pertaining to the spiritual second kingdom. Because this second kingdom, Christ's church, is the ultimate and irreplaceable representative of redemption in the present age. Through the cross, Christ's redemption alone broke into a fallen creation and established a beachhead for the coming kingdom that will be completed when he returns to judge mankind. The church, therefore, reflects this reality in both its internal activities as well as externally in the world at large. And under this model, then, the primary role of the church is to preach the word, administer the sacraments, and lead believers in worship. This, in turn, edifies the body of believers so that they can pursue their individual callings as they engage the common kingdom in both their vocation as well as their everyday lives. And since this is the calling of the second kingdom, it would be wrong to tack on alternative callings. The church is a representative of the Redeemer, not the Redeemer himself. Therefore, the church ought to be concerned with obedience as opposed to being a redeeming agent of the common kingdom, come what may. 
change in the world toward the better will come as a natural consequence of our obedience to scripture and not because we are ourselves implementing social change. In effect, we're to believe and walk out this book on an individual level, and our King Jesus will take care of the rest. It's not our concern how nations rise and fall. We have a job to do, and that job does not change based on where we find ourselves existing or what laws are passed. If the laws of the land permits our churches to function without harassment, praise God. And if the laws of the land do not permit our churches to function, we rebel by ignoring those laws and carrying on with our duties anyway, no matter the consequences. The only thing anybody can do to stop the church from doing its duty is to kill us, and that is what our mindset is supposed to be. So, for adherence of this dual citizen emphasis, our focus as far as we see ourselves ought to be responsible citizens, curbed and defined by outwardly, both outwardly by way of civic duties, as well as patient ambassadors of a kingdom not of this earth, inwardly by way of motivation and attitude. And for all intents and purposes, it seems to me that you have to decide where you sit on this issue. Are we as Christians to be intentionally pursuing and taking over the world for Christ by way of our governments, or are we instead to patiently wait in obedience to the word until Christ comes back and exclusively does that for us? Because I suspect that for this third puzzle piece, for most of us, we've never realized that we need to decide. We tend to personally be noncommittal, or at the very least, uninterested in doing any real deep theological thinking on this subject matter. We kind of avoid doing any heavy lifting here, and instead let others do the heavy lifting for us, and then we kind of join their ranks full sail regardless of inconsistency, because at the very least, it makes us feel like we know what we're doing. Perhaps I'm only talking about myself, but I do this stuff for a living. And even I'm distracted and drawn by political pundits, arguments for this, that, and the other thing. Who has the time to do all this research, honestly? And is it not the right thing to do when overwhelmed with conflicting political information and incessant talking heads on whatever favorite media outlet we watch to look around at the rest of Christianity in America to see how they're responding? Certainly moving in unity toward one candidate or another will help drive policy in a direction that favors Christianity, right? How could that possibly not be our default position? Well, which brings us to our last puzzle piece. What happens when we allow this distinction between dominion theology and two kingdoms theology to blur? Or perhaps not think about these things at all? What happens when you take a society that dresses in the Christian fashion but fundamentally rejects Christ and you combine it with the human predicament of sin? Well, it's the same thing's happened in every single society for the history of mankind. Idolatry is what happens. The human heart is an idol factory. Humans make for themselves idols that look like them or what they want to be true. And they do it at the drop of a hat and always have. Anything but God will do. Everything from golden calves to emperors, anything but God. And so in our particular case, the American iteration of this is idols fashioned in Christian clothes. Idols that have been have an outward appearance of Christianity, utilizing the same shared vocabulary, but completely false. And they bear the name Christian, but when you delve past their superficial pretensions, you realize quite, quite quickly that you're dealing with an entirely different deity. 
And like in most cases, these idols lay in the pitfalls on both sides of the road. So if your preferences tend toward one side of the theological spectrum, you'll be more easily persuaded and less guarded against one type of idol. But if your preferences lie on the other side of the theological spectrum, you'll be persuaded by a different version of that same idol. A version of that same idol that will undoubtedly appear more palatable to us, depending upon what we like. No person is safe, and no nation is safe from this potential reality. Let me show you what I mean. The first idol I want to point out is called Christian progressivism. A worldview that can be best summarized as Christianity for people who don't like Christianity. You come to this belief as you are, and you are told that you are perfect, just as you are. Anything and everything you want to be true is true. Truth, in fact, is simply a developing personal journey into understanding our own intrinsic divinity. And because you are divine, then all of those icky parts of the Bible that says that you are a broken, sinful wretch, you can ignore. Because after all, isn't God love? And how can God be loving and exclusive? And clearly the Bible was written by a bunch of misogynists and homophobes. So instead, we're simply going to focus on Jesus, the meek and mild mystic. Jesus taught in parables, right? So the Bible is simply a set of metaphors that can help you unlock your acceptance of yourself. After all, if God is the source of life, I worship God by living. If God is the source of love, I worship God by loving. If God is the ground of being, I worship God by having the courage to be more fully human, the embodiment of the divine. And since these outdated myths no longer apply to us today, then anything they have to say about holiness is outdated as well. The view of the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbaric and primitive concept. So instead, we focus on heaven being achievable here and now. Who knows if there's really an afterlife? The job of the Christian is to focus on the here and now, to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. This savior theology stuff, telling individuals they need healing, is actually racist because it breeds a bigotry that says people are struggling on earth because of their sin instead of because of oppressive power structures. We don't want savior theology, we want liberation theology. We do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Any of this sound familiar? There is nothing even remotely accurate in any of these things, moods and attitudes, as far as claiming that these things are Christianity. But they sound nice, don't they? With this idol and those who bow to it, we find the performance of enough religious activity to gain a sense of well-being without a true devotion to Jesus. The redefinition of scriptural truths to accommodate culture, talking a lot about God in a general sense, but very little about Jesus Christ as Lord over your life. Seeing protection and blessing as goals to be achieved rather than byproducts of a loving relationship with God and celebrating ongoing sin while still claiming to know God. Listen to me here. Taking a human agenda and usurping God's authority to make it sound like you have God's backing is called taking the Lord's name in vain. You may recall from Sunday school that this is so emphatic a no from God that he wrote it in stone himself. And yet we're still regularly seduced by this. This idol feels familiar in that it's dressed in compassion and a compassionate invitation to deal with real feelings of brokenness, which is indeed Christianity. 
but instead of giving us the answer to the invitation that Christ is both redeemer and physician, and there is no amount of brokenness that he cannot mend, this idol turns you away from Christ and toward an answer so hollow and feckless, it will numb you into spending your entire life in the church, only to find out in the end that Jesus has no idea who you are because you've never actually met. That's Matthew 7. Okay, the second idol seduces us in a totally different way. Instead of being dressed in compassion, understanding, and inclusivity, it dresses in devotion, loyalty, and protection. Mimicking Christ's role as a shepherd of his flock, the idol of Christian nationalism, entices us and those who bow to it to view America as our savior and America's success with the success of the kingdom of God. This idol seeks to merge the Christian identity with the American identity such that the American interests become increasingly and often simultaneously seen as Christian. This idol rallies its worshipers under the guise of patriotism to begin placing American flags in sanctuaries, to sing the Star-Spangled Banner in lieu of hymns, and to pledge allegiance before engaging in the sacraments. By habitually conflating religious authority with political authority, this idol convinces well-meaning believers to defend inexcusably anti-Christian behavior and speech by our governing authorities. And in the depths of the numbing power of living in a state of constant cognitive dissonance, this idol weaponizes the brotherhood and traditional values of patriotism against anyone that dares question its power to save. Make faith great again, one party argues restore the soul of the nation, the other party replies. Both authored to empower Christian nationalism against the traitors who would think otherwise. Any of this sound familiar? There's nothing even remotely accurate in any of these teachings. These moods and attitudes as far as claiming that these things are Christianity. But they sound nice, don't they? With this idol and those who bow to it, and I'm repeating myself on purpose, this is important for emphasis, we find the performance of enough religious activity in the form of promoting a political party to gain a sense of well-being without a true devotion to Jesus. It doesn't matter what political party it is. It doesn't matter how many political parties are made up in the future. It still applies. The redefinition of scriptural truths are there accommodating uh, political leaders, talking a lot about God in a general sense, but very little about Jesus Christ as a sovereign over America, seeing protection and blessing as evidence that God favors America rather than the byproducts of individuals in a loving relationship with God and minimizing political leaders' ongoing sin while claiming to know God. Listen to me, please. Taking a human agenda and usurping God's authority to make it sound like you have God's backing is called taking the Lord's name in vain. You may recall from Sunday school that this is so emphatic a no from God that he wrote it in stone himself, and yet we're still regularly seduced by this. This idol is familiar in that it speaks in the language of devoted love, care, and defense of virtue like loyalty, sacrifice, and the brotherhood of man. But instead of giving us the comfort that Christ is both protector, sovereign king, um, and sovereign king, and there's no amount of wars, refugee crises, riots, or loss of liberties that surprises him or runs outside of his providential control, 
This idol turns you away from Christ and toward a solace so hollow and feckless, it will numb you into spending your entire life as a political pundit, only to find out in the end that Jesus has no idea who you are because you've never actually met. And now you have in front of you all the puzzle pieces. Or at least the ones that are apparent to me. Competing voices all vying for airtime in your brain. And now comes the easy part of the thought experiment that I promised at the beginning of this talk. We engage in the tried and true pastime of being obedient to the first commandment, and we take a spiritual bat to these idols. Christianity's success is not tied to the success of alternative identities. Christian progressivism lays waste to the gospel by removing repentance from the formula. And so we lay waste to any of its whispers in our minds in return. Christianity's success is not tied to American success. Christian nationalism lays waste to the gospel by removing the sovereign from the formula. And so we lay waste to any of its whispers in our minds in return. How are Christians supposed to engage in their civic duties? We engage in our civic duties by submitting and holding captive our consciences to this book. And since our consciences are bound by scripture and since our actions are bound by our consciences, the natural results of that submission will be correct. We test our consciences constantly in this way by reflecting on our motives. We ask ourselves questions like, are we allowing something outside of God's word to dictate our actions in the voting booth? We get on our knees and repent of, devo of our devotion to perpetuating whatever we find personally comfortable, be it innovation on one side or tradition on the other, while failing to be devoted to the study of God's word. Because that's part of the problem, isn't it? We ultimately fear losing our Christianish American civil religion because we know how uncomfortable that might get. We see and hear how Christians elsewhere in the world are treated, and we recoil at the thought of having to experience that, and rightly so. But instead of taking a deep breath and saying that we will not allow that fear to coerce us into manipulating our minds into justifying fake dichotomies, we try to have it both ways by saying, I, I'm just supporting the lesser of two evils, and stopping there. Guys, listen to me. This is gonna hurt a little bit because it hurt really badly when I pulled it out of my own mind. This applies to me. Being forced to choose the lesser of two evils is a line from Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida in the 14th century. It was employed by a Christian mystic named Thomas von Kempen 100 years later in a devotional he wrote that became popular and that didn't actually use that phrase in the way that we employ it today. But the crucial piece of information that you need here is that choosing the lesser of two evils isn't in the Bible. The Bible says flee all evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, this is real, takes the concept a step further and says don't even have the appearance of evil. And Romans 1.32 reminds us that we will be held accountable not only for the evil deeds we do, but also when we give approval to those who practice them. So why are we even allowing the metric of the lesser of two evils to rationalize any of our decisions, be it civic ones or not? Are we actually recognizing that these are evil? Are we serious about that? Because that means something. 
And in the case of presidential elections, which is when all of these things that we've been talking about tonight comes up the most, obviously, rationalizing is precisely what I'd like to suggest might be occurring. We know that there are more than two options. It's a false dichotomy before it even comes out of our mouths. We know that even if all the options are evil, we have the option to abstain from voting. We know. But the human heart is an idol factory, and so it begins inventing new fake sins to try and bind the Christian's mind to disobedience to cultural idols. Fake sins that sound convincing to us, like you're just throwing away your vote, or abstaining is unpatriotic and ungrateful to the men and women who've laid down their lives for that right. And they are convincing because men and women have truly sacrificed their lives to protect that right. And pragmatically speaking, failing to vote for one of the two biggest political parties doesn't look like it will amount to a hill of beans, really. And in some people's minds will even fuel the greater of the two evils. Church family, God is not uniquely concerned with American elections, but God is supremely concerned with his church. It's time for us to get very raw and very real with ourselves and to ask of our consciences, who do you fear more when you go to the voting booth? Your friends, neighbors, and family members' judgment or the judgment seat of God? If your conscience, redeemed, healed, and saved by Christ, informed by prayer and dedication to this book, is identifying candidates as evil, encouraging you to verbally identify them as evil to others, and convicting your soul that they are indeed evil, then why, loved ones, are you not tossing voting for these people as far away from you as humanly possible? That is an option. Because being unpatriotic, this is going to be hard, being unpatriotic is not a sin. Throwing away your vote is also not a sin. And I don't know about you, but both my granddaddies fought Nazis, and they'd be team cap through and through. But they were Christians first. And if they were here, I am convinced they would agree that their sacrifice for our freedom to vote was never intended to be set against disobedience to a conscience held captive by scripture. I could be wrong. And don't get me wrong, it isn't that I don't understand the panicked feeling that fuels my desire to vote in a way that I believe looks pragmatic. I feel it deeply. I study the rise and falls of empires all the time. I know exactly what happens when individual liberties like freedom of speech and religion go out the window. Because when it inevitably happens is they start rounding up people with microphones giving talks like this. And where they take them usually isn't pleasant, to put it nicely. But this book says plainly that I am to expect that sort of treatment. And this book says that I am to be prepared for my obedience to Christ to potentially be the reason my life ends at the hands of an inhospitable government. So the fact that I'm not experiencing that right now is an outrageous blessing. But the blessing is not mine to wield or withdraw. God alone controls that the idle factory of my heart, producing the notion that I have any ability to perpetuate that blessing, even to the point of justifying disobedience, is absurd. The idols my heart is producing are absurd. They're irrational even. 
I'm not God. I will never be him. And he is the only one who knows what is best for the church through the rising and falling of nations. Stay with me, okay? What if the best thing for the church worldwide is America to fall? Am I really prepared to be as brazen as I am in that new context? It's easy here. The worst thing I have to worry about right now is that you leave tonight not liking me very much. But Christianity flourishes under nationwide persecution. Persecution is a great way to expose fake Christianity. Have you noticed that? In a world where America is effectively producing persuasive idols, using all of our wealth and global power, calling themselves Christianity, and then exporting it to other parts of the world, shouldn't we who know the God we serve not be surprised if that's precisely what happens? This is something I need to deal with personally in prayer, but so do we all, no matter where we are in our relationship with God. You're sensible people, work it out. No, this is not me secretly trying to get you to vote third party. No, this is not me saying the formula for Christian voting is to abstain. It's not. It's not my prerogative to do that. My job is to identify problems of the Spirit and work through them with you where we can. And the truth is, I think, that the genuinely difficult things we've sorted through tonight can be summarized in a genuinely not difficult to understand way. One question. Is the God of the Bible sovereign over every facet of your life or not? If the answer to that question is yes, then your only civic duty is to be obedient and listen to how the Spirit is informing your conscience, checked and tested in obedience to his word, by his word. That is your civic duty. If the answer, however, to that question is no, then the conversation we need to be having has absolutely nothing to do with politics whatsoever. Our society's confusion with regard to what the Christian position is on civic duty is a direct result of how American philosophy has answered the question, what comforts us in our mortality? American philosophy says that what comforts us is that we find ourselves in a land hard fought where we can, for the duration of our life, pursue life, liberty, and happiness. But Christianity answers this question differently. What comforts us in life and death? The answer is that we are not our own. That our lives are to be marked by the calm submission to the creator who is the sole author of life, true liberty, and joy eternal. A definition no constitution on earth will ever be able to touch. Okay, I'll be done now. That was a lot. Let's open up for some Q&A. Nobody walked out, I'm shocked. <laughs> Did I punch too hard? Remember, you're, you can ask any questions you like. It doesn't have to be on a topic for tonight. And if we don't have any questions, wow. Okay, good. Hey, Anna. Hey. I know why you put your hair up and uh, ask for prayer. <laughs> um, so it's kind of weird that, uh, that you brought this subject up. Uh, I guess two weeks ago, uh, we were in uh, a multi-church, a multi-church um, revival. And the focus was to put your focus on Christ and Christ alone. 
not Christ plus anything, just Christ. And, and it's really opened our eyes uh, as the churches that were involved. Uh, it was really, really good. And that's where I put this too, is, you know, if we just focus on Christ and Christ alone, then everything else falls to the side. And if we put our trust in him for our eternal life, then why can't we put it in him for everything else? You know, nothing else matters. Um, and so this really went along with the revival that we got out of, and, and I appreciate it. Um, I, I have a, a brother, an older brother, that called me just uh, two days ago, and he was talking about something political, and he said, why is no one doing anything? He said, I feel like I need to just drive up there now, you know, and all this stuff. And, and all that was coming to mind, too. And he's just so tore up inside, and he don't know what to do with that. Um, and I hope that I can get this to him somehow, and, and uh, I think it'll help. It'll be up on the YouTube channel. I, I say shortly. you got to wait for, for editing and stuff. But the podcast comes up almost immediately. The guys here at the Vineyard are crazy fast. Good. I don't know how they do it, but this content will be available. And if you subscribe to the YouTube channel, you'll get an email when it comes up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Hello. Hello. Uh, so this is not directly political, but it's part of the messaging that's out there, I guess. It's okay. Um, and a uh, Russell... Um, that I have had and just reading a bunch of books, uh, various Christian authors and things, and trying to just sift uh, the church's role, not in pol politics so specifically, or um, like you're mentioning, our civic duty, like to vote, mm -hmm. um, but more so Jesus mandates to us to care for widows, orphans, the poor. Mm -hmm. And so I... Um, I have worked at the border with um, the refugees coming across mm. with Samaritan's Purse and have a heart for, um, you know, the folks on the fringes, whether it's the poor in America, sure. um, whether it's, you know, people who are fleeing those kinds of circumstances. And just I feel like, I know it's very dangerous to say the church as a whole. You're allowed the, to be dangerous. Or the right American yeah. church, yep. right? We are um, being mutually vulnerable and talking through those, these things. One of those modifiers, the American church, yep, right? Yeah, it's okay. Sorry. So um, in, my, in my personal experience as a part of churches, um, I think I feel like because we don't know what to do, we don't do as a group. And then as an individual, it's really hard to figure out, like, do I just dive in someplace and start trying to make a difference? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you can just kind of speak to that tension because mm -hmm. I know that's part of the appeal for that church I didn't have a name for, which mm -hmm. you're calling Christian progressivism, mm -hmm. which is very much about the things mm -hmm. that sound like what Christ tells mm -hmm. us to do. And so I've, I feel like I'm a pretty conservative Christian, but when I talk about feeling drawn to do more in these areas, I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of people look at me like... You know, you one of those. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, yes. You. Yeah, absolutely. Major issues where it's those. There are things that are simultaneous that weren't ever supposed to be set at odds against each other, and even the term Christian progressivism can be understood by different different ways. Which is why I gave the examples that I did, so that you understood a spe the specific type. Because I worry it. You, when we're talking in theological cases as opposed to like political cases, it's real quick to be like, oh, that means politically liberal. Right? And it doesn't always mean that. Um, it means theologically liberal, 
which is a total different thing. So one of the things that I feel I see on a regular basis is this dynamic between um, how am I as a Christian supposed to tell the government how I want the government to represent me to solve these problems, like the problems at the border. And one of the ways that we talk about it regularly is the idea that your duties as a Christian to care for the widows and orphans and to care for the, the oppressed and to be and want to justice are personal, they're individual responsibilities that actually cannot be delegated to the state. If, yeah, yeah, staying within the church, okay. Um, from what, from everything that I can tell, if you are submitting yourself to Scripture and you're praying over this, and that is where your heart is burning, jump into a parachurch movement doing just that, because I suspect that God is is producing in us as individuals different emphases, right? For obvious reasons, we're a body. So the fact that Samaritan's Purse focuses on that—that's a perfect way of exercising your your what you believe you're being called to, to do. And it's even better if you're talking to others who may not know that that's an option for them who are also being called to come alongside you. Um, but you're right, it does get hard because the unity in that move towards that one specific issue, I don't think, I, I seriously, this is just me talking anecdotally, I don't think we're ever gonna see that because God is working on simultaneous projects all at once. So I, I could be wrong, but does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, I have two things. Can you hear me? Is this on? Kind of. You're, you're pretty muffled. Hello? There you on? go. There okay. you go. I have two things. Um, first, for that, I just want to say, like, I'm interested in helping, too. And I think a lot of times people think that the church isn't doing it, but the church starts these parachurch organizations. Right. You know, so exactly. the, the church is just saying this is an expert. Right. So I just think that's helpful to see. A lot of times it is the church, you know, but it's just just in general, because it is hard for, like, the local church pastor to know how to solve all this. Sure. But it's like, no, we want to do these things. I think that's just good to keep talking about it as a church. Um, but my question was um, the, uh, okay, this, I've just been uh, researching um, recently, and it came to my attention, this whole, like, uh, seven mountain mandate yes. thing. Yes, the new apostolic reformation. Yeah, and, like, on the outset, it looks like this is a good, like, evangelistic <laughs> like strategy, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're, they have um, schools of like, we're going to teach you how to, you Prophesy. know. Prophesy. Yeah, or just no. like infiltrate, um, you know, mathematics, infiltrate, you know, because mm -hmm. we tell people like, go to work, be Christians at your workplace, mm -hmm. and they're teaching you how to do it. Anyway, this sounds so great, like it's an evangelical tool, but nowhere did I think it was about like um, dominionism, you know, like we're trying to like take over the world. Yeah, yeah, that's so what the like, mandate is. Yeah, yeah. so like is, how, how do we know that's their heart or like, I mean, obviously yeah. I, I get it, I, and it's not just you, it's a million people saying sure, it, but sure. I'm just like, oh, I just thought we were just trying to like be good Christians in our workplace, sure. and now we're like, oh, we're trying to take over the world, what's happening? And it's marketed that way on purpose. Yeah. So I have a whole, there's a, some of my students are grinning right now because we did an entire semester, semester on the New Apostolic Reformation practically, okay. and I don't know how else to tell you this besides everything that I've seen is marketed to take advantage of the, the fact that the Christians think that way. And the reason why there are these major churches that have put together these church packages that you can then go in and they'll train you in all these things is to export that movement and, and turn your church into an NAR church plant. Um, yeah, I've got tons of resources for you if you want them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, actually, just today, I saw a video by one of the people you put up under Christian progressivism, Brandon Robertson. Yes, um, Jesus is racist. Yeah. Yes. Well, I actually saw a video of him talking about that 
in Genesis 3, like the serpent was telling truth to <laughs> Eve and that God lied. And that God lied, yeah. Yeah, so... Oh, yeah. He, Brandon Robertson, TikTok, if you want to just uh, really I've been seeing him a lot on TikTok, actually, yeah. and he's yeah. gaining a lot of popularity. So oh, I was just wondering, huge. how do we combat the lies of those types of idolatry, that and Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. on a personal level as we see it more and more? All I can figure out to do is just call it out when you see it. Um, especially if you've got, because in my circles, for example, I was college students. The college students are coming to me being like, I can't quite figure out. He's, he, by the way, Brandon Robertson is a master class in manipulation. Incredible as far as just the way that he thinks and the way he presents material. I mean, he will, he, it, just in the Jesus is Racist video, which is what, two minutes long? It's TikTok. There are five bald-faced lies just in that video. And he's presenting as though this is just like known. Anyway, I'm not sure how to help you except to keep it on an individual level and start teaching, especially if it's something that you're seeing over and over and over again. And even starting a podcast. I mean, um, for example, that's how Mike Winger's podcast started up. Are you familiar with Mike? Yeah. He's excellent. And he, he's, he can turn things out now so fast I'm blown away. Um, keep talking about it and call it out as a lie. Don't play the game of like, oh, well, this, you know, it's, don't be wishy-washy, I guess. We don't have room for wishy-washy anymore. It's, going, it's happening too fast. That's my recommendation, of course. Okay. Uh, you're probably not going to like me after I say all this. That's all right. <laughs> we but my, uh, my uh, experience is that most of the Christians that I know, and I am a Christian, are cowards. And uh, Jesus explicitly said, said in Revelation 21, when he's listing out all these abominable sins that people that will not enter into the kingdom, first thing he says, none of the cowardly will enter. I think that for the most part, in uh, our Christian circles, especially here in America, is what we want is to prosper. We want peace. We don't want any controversy. <clears throat> Even in our churches, when we have our little special groups, motorcycle riders, baseball players, older people, younger people, we don't want to read the Bible. We won't study it. We won't open it up. Yeah, we'll pray. And we got a lot of Christians together, but we won't study the word. We won't discuss it. We don't know it. So we come up with something. Oh, we'll go to work and we just act nice and they'll know that we're Christians and they'll want to be like us. But we don't share the word because we're afraid, afraid of what people will think. It's kind of interesting. The only time I've ever heard Bible thumpers is from Christians. I want to share and have a discussion about the Word of God, and I quote a scripture or show them a scripture. I don't like Bible thumpers. When I share the Word with people that don't go to church, that curse every other word, they're intrigued by what I'm sharing. 
And I've had many instances where people have come to Christ because of it. But we don't want to study the word there and we're impotent when we go out in our communities. <clears throat> I don't know right now, maybe I'm wrong, in this church right here, are there groups that are actually studying, trying to be mature so that they can share the gospel? Or are you, in your prayers, are you just trying to have a great life? Jesus says all the way through in the, in the gospels, it's in every gospel. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will gain it. In the book of Revelations, it says, blessed are they who die in Christ for power. You want to be blessed, but yet we're cowards. And I don't know that we really want that. What we want is what America is offering. We want peace. We want prosperity. But we want the things of this kingdom and not the kingdom of God. And I think that is the problem. We're afraid to read this word. We're doing like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had a Bible and he just carved it up. Put all those great things that he wanted to say or wanted to, to emphasize and cut out all the other stuff. And that's what we do. We don't want to hear sound doctrine. And actually, that's a prophecy. Because in Timothy, it says, men will no longer endure sound doctrine, but heap upon themselves teachers that will tickle their ears. In other words, we go to church and somebody comes up with a message that seems to bless us or justify us. And it's an American message. It is American message. It's peace and prosperity. We need to get so. you a pulpit. <laughs> That's a good sign. Do you have a question, Aaron? Yeah. So I, if you're gonna, is this picking it up? Yeah. Okay. I know. I'm trying to, to whatever you do. <laughs> We know cold. you've had a cold, no. I know, that's right. Um, <laughs> so if, I, if you're going to get any heat today, it's going to be, I would think, about this possibility of abstaining from a vote. I and know. So let me, let me just sort of try and prod for a little bit more from you. So um, there is just no such thing as a perfect candidate. Yes. No such thing as a candidate with whom I completely align. Right. Um, and yet, you know, you, you could end up with a situation where um, you see all available candidates as completely misaligned, and it could feel anathema to vote for either or three or four, whatever the options are. Yeah. And so I, it's logical that there could be a point where you can I cannot in good conscience. Yeah. Okay. But could you, and this is vague, I you know, won't be okay. able to That's say right. specifically, right. but could you speak to where that threshold might be to where you could say, okay, I'm not same page with this person, yeah. 
but I can still cast a vote in good conscience. Yeah. But you can go, okay, where a threshold that hits where you go, okay, I can't, I just can't vote for either or however many the candidates might be. Yeah. What, is there a breaking point you could try to identify? The, the, as far as I, and I've thought about this deeply, I think I've spent at least 60 hours preparing for just this talk. Um, just sitting and thinking. The best that I can represent is that the threshold is given to you by the Spirit individually as you submit yourself in your prayer closet. I mean really submit yourself. Not this like, well, I thought about it for a second or I've had a bunch of people in, uh, tell me what I need to do. I mean, we know how to submit ourselves to God. Find a quiet spot in your house. Go and ask Him to forgive you. Repent, honestly. Read the scriptures. Search the scriptures. We have so many months of prep before any major elections. And I have the presidential election in mind, but this would apply to local elections as well. And to the best of my ability, the way to answer that question is the Spirit will tell you exactly where that threshold is. Um, so I, I think it'd be probably fair to say, should I say this? Yeah, I'm going to do it. I would, say, I would say that one of the thresholds would be a candidate who's okay with the mass slaughter of children. That'd be somebody that I would expect the Holy Spirit to go, nah. But I could be, I could be mistaken there. I'd seriously highly doubt it. But since I'm, since I'm spitballing, I'd go with that's probably a fair threshold. Yeah. Well, I think that's really, really helpful. And I would just, I would just add as an amen that if we went through that process mm -hmm. as diligently as you say, even if in the end we were wrong. I think the Lord could use that to do remarkable things. Oh, absolutely. Just our own sanctification and, and around us and our usefulness. Maybe absolutely. even more so than a vote. Absolutely. So. I, just, I just can't stand what, what bothers me and what, was, what inspired that, kind of, that line was that I was noticing that we were being evangelical Christians in general. I was going reviewing footage um, of kind of like how major conferences and major um, get gatherings of both Republicans and Democrats came together, and when they get to the Christian stuff, it was marketed. It was just a marketing. It was an, a social engineering experiment to try to guilt Christians into believing that you, the only option you possibly have is A, to vote, and B, to pick one of them. And it's a lie. It's a lie, and I know that's controversial, but it's true. And if I and I mean this honestly, I'm not saying if you're taking this lightly. No, this is again, this is not a formula for just like kicking back and doing nothing. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you've done all the things we're talking about, and the Lord is like, you can't vote for these people. Listen to that. Be obedient to the Spirit, and doesn't matter how many people tell you how unpatriotic you are. It doesn't matter. Just give yourself permission to be honest between you and your Creator and trust that he has the right path laid out, even if it looks like everything we've ever known is going to just hit the fan. Okay. Megan. Hello. Hello. So I work in local government. Um, so I think one thing that is helpful for me and one thing that I've learned in local government is how accessible it can be compared to state or federal government. Mm -hmm. So something that's difficult for me when choosing a candidate at the state or federal level is how can I really know their position yeah. without sifting through reading legislation? And if they're not in a legislative position, then that gets even more difficult. Yeah. Reading Supreme Court cases is not exactly something that I'm trained to do. So that it gets hard for me to feel like I understand mm -hmm. what's going on. Um, 
at the local level and in Blount County, we're very blessed. I've, I'm, I'm sifting through municipalities in my head and I think I can speak for all of them when I say you can find phone numbers online for people in each legislative council or okay. commission Sorry. Um, in Blount County. So if you have questions about the people you're voting for at a local level, you can call and talk to them and you're gonna get their home number and you're gonna be able to talk to them on the phone and ask wow. them questions. So you don't have to trust sound bites. You don't have to trust yeah. the AP. You can call and directly speak to that person. So if you are somebody who says, who's sitting here going, well, dang it, I don't wanna abstain, mm -hmm. but I don't know how to really decide who my correct candidate is aside from mm -hmm. praying, which obviously like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. But if you're, if you're still struggling to understand the position of the candidates sure. themselves, Get involved in local government that's because brilliant. that's what touches you mm -hmm. in a lot of ways even more than your state and federal folks do. So, and those elections are won or lost by less than five votes really often in this county. So, okay, get involved at the local level. That's brilliant. Thank you, Megan. I should have probably wore my hair in a bun <laughs> because I'm going to be very specific. Okay. Um, uh, I grew up in a family that is die-hard Republican, doesn't matter, okay, and um, I have tried to, I've even said the words, I chose the lesser of two evils, yeah. I've said that, but so come out of I. my mouth, so have I, um, but when you have, I feel like, um, I remember as a Sunday school rat kid, thinking, uh, or being taught many, many years ago, you know, about how, uh, like in China and in, in places in Asia, you would have to secretly go and have your faith, you know, to, to talk about your faith and things. Well, I kind of feel that way within my family um, because Donald Trump is the best man in the world. And um, that he is... Uh, uh, that we're just all going to hell because now we have a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. Much less to say a, I can't even, I can't even say the words what they think about the vice president. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah, all right, because it's multi-focused. I personally, uh, my mother ran for Senate, state Senate. Oh, wow. So they, they are very deep in politics. Okay. So I, I, uh, focus myself on being nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have, I, it, heck, if Ross Perot had run, I'd probably have voted for him this last time. I, I'm just saying that to be funny. But in all seriousness, I'm not either one. Right. I, I don't have a party. I try to pray for the person. Yeah. and try. That's what I try to do. Yeah. But my question is, um, because I have coworkers that I see every day that are... Um, very party-focused, no matter what, it's party-focused. How do you, um, you know, I try not to engage because I will let myself get mad, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be mad. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to just sit and be quiet because, again, as he said, then you become a coward. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, 
I just, I guess I just am asking, what do you do when you are confronted with people that are, you know, you sit over there and you're, and you listen and they go, did you see what just happened on the news? And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just very frustrating mm -hmm. uh, when you have, I mean, they say that they are Christian too. I'm not here to judge them. Right. I don't know where their true heart is. Exactly. But what, what do you do? Me personally, I try to focus on theology and I avoid, I let the theology speak for itself. So instead of engaging like the specific candidate or what they saw on the news or what happened, you can, you can share with them, you know, if it's something that was appalling, you can share with them in that moment and say, yeah, this is, this is really bad. And then turn attention to Jesus. Because if they're shared, if they're Christians, that and genuinely Christian and not just a part of Christendom wearing the label, which is hard to figure out sometimes. You cannot just trust when somebody says, I'm a Christian, that that is anything meaningful anymore. Well, that's even part of judging, too. Yeah. And, and, and I was, all, and again, yeah. I was always taught that that is just something a Christian does not do. You do not judge a person's heart. Right. But it's very hard. You're allowed to discriminate, and I use it, the D-I-S, discriminate between things that are being said, right? Ideas and whether mm -hmm. or not they're holy and whether... So you, in that way, we judge those things in the same way that Jesus judged the Pharisees, right? But we can never say for certain whether somebody's saved, right? All we can do wow. is look at what the outward outpouring is. You don't even need to focus on that stuff. You just need to hold that information in the back of your head, right? And so you can say, well, let's talk about whatever biblical equivalent is in you, whatever you're discussing right now and focus on the scriptures. And I bet if that's where your focus is, it'll become plain pretty quickly how serious they are about this Bible. Right. Yeah. Because it'll become real quick. Well, this Bible's an outdated book. You know, we can't really trust it. You know, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with biblical reliability and all the stuff we trained on last time. And you're not talking about politics at all and you don't have to be upset. And you're doing a service. Yeah, it's, it's really hard because they, they it's like the, uh, uh, they are masters at twists and turns. And then being coward again, you become intimidated, and that's where I get. I oh, become sure. intimidated, yeah. and I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to get mad. Mm -hmm. That's that's what's going to happen. Is mm -hmm. that is what is going to come out of me? And it's just extremely hard. It's extremely frustrating, especially when in within my family. Sure, and that's um, normal. Which I'm thankful to say, live in another state, and no, I don't have to <laughs> deal with them on a regular basis. But. Um, I'm fixing to go see them for 10 days, so I'm really getting myself ready. <laughs> but, um, you know, in all honesty, it's just, it, it really is a very, uh, to me, that is very uh, difficult, I think, to navigate. It absolutely is. Oh. It absolutely is. It's, a, it's near impossible. Um, you, what you do is you get a bumper sticker that says Apologia with Anna, which I will give you. <laughs> and then you send them to the YouTube channel. And you just go, what do you think about this Poppin' J Millennial putting on a microphone talking about politics? Yeah. So you just turn them on. They'll do the, will they recognize your voice? You can send them the podcast. <laughs> It's impossible. I don't know how to help you. It's a case-by-case -case basis except prayer and honesty. I mean, that's all you can be is honest. And as you practice, and it does get easier with practice, it really does. Um, 
And sometimes your family is the best to do that with because they'll forgive you and they still love you. No. Oh, no? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then... I am serious. There is... Yeah. If you're serious about if you're serious about practicing, really, and I, I know you are serious, so I don't mean that in a in a disparaging way or anything, but we can. I do this with our students, and I will pose as like they can pose as whatever person they're trying to talk to, and then just listen to me speak back to see if that's helpful. We can do that. We can do that dynamic play. I do that. I do see undercover Mormon all the time, and I do undercover Jehovah's Witness and undercover atheist, and yeah, and they have to respond to me. So we, I mean, role play can be really effective if you're nervous about giving the gospel, or not the gospel, but just talking about in general about difficult subjects. It's easy, way easier with practice. Just an option. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Anna. I have to touch this because I'm short. It's okay. That's okay. Okay. Anna, I, um, I initially came to you personally when I found on the heels of the results of the election, I found my heart pounding. Mm -hmm. And um, to give a little backdrop to that, um, I, am an, I am a first-generation immigrant to this country, very grateful for the freedoms experienced here. I'm also, um, I won't claim to have read the volumes that you have, but I am very interested in history, being from Korea, I'm keenly aware of the difference between North and South. Yeah. Um, I have um, family members that I've never met because of what happened in Korea, and I'm very familiar with personal accounts of torture. And you know, too, far better than I, um, what happens in totalitarian oh, governments, yeah. um, slash communist governments, and... Um, and with that backdrop, I just, I wanted to come to you and hear anything you had to give me to help me process this fear. And I thought, is this just an arrow from the enemy? Is this just something in my spirit that, that I'm really sensing accurately as impending doom? And what do I do with it? Um, and I'm glad to say, I don't feel that dread at an emotional level. And I had to preach myself back to steadiness that all the things you presented here. And uh, I might throw in an exchange I had once on an airplane ride where uh, a very proud Korean woman, she would say, you know, Korea first. And um, she said, so you, you know, you're an American citizen. You know, you've been in, you've lived in these different countries. Do you think of yourself more as American or Korean? And she was really hoping that I would say Korean because, you know, this. Okay. And, and that's where I was born. And Korean, you know, Korea is the best and has kimchi and, you know, taekwondo. And we should <laughs> be really proud. And, and what I said to her, and this was 20-some years ago, I said to her, you know, there's actually a category you haven't listed. I am first and foremost a Christian. Mm -hmm. And she went, huh. And I said... Having said that, my identity is in is a spiritual identity first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then we went on to say, you know, I have more in common with a Christian in Zimbabwe than I do with a Korean American middle class person in Orange County. Right. Right? Exactly. So that's, you know, I know that. I know that. And, and I also know that the church often grows underground mm -hmm. and under persecution. But I was saying to the Lord, 
I don't like pain. No. I don't like discomfort. Yeah. And that's just honest truth. But let's step back a little further there. Okay. What, what I was thinking when I voted wasn't in terms so much uh, um, of thinking through the paradigm of evil and lesser evil. Mm-hmm. I already recognize human beings are flawed. Um, and I think um, that was brought up already. Yeah, yeah. What I was thinking of is which platform, and I'm looking beyond personality too. Right. Ooh, um, which platform would promote freedom, right. including freedom to advance the gospel. Mm-hmm. Prosperity, not so that we can have, you know, nice homes, but prosperity so that devoted Christians um, can, can build wealth and support missionaries, which we saw mm-hmm. coming out of this country mm-hmm. in the 19th century in the droves. It's the, it was because of rich Christians supporting um, missionaries um, that the missions movement was what it was. So, you know, those are the thoughts going through my mind. So maybe a different way to look at evil or lesser evil is what, I mean, every person has to vote their conscience, and I respect that. Right, exactly. Or not vote according to conscience, which, you know, weighed heavenly on me too. But what what do you think of a Christian, and I'm still just processing. I'm going to go home and be processing for many hours. I know, I know. But it's part of dialectic. Um, it's totally right okay. now. That's yeah, what. I'm going to go home and go. Why did I say that? But I'm going to. What I'm. What I'm thinking right now is, what do you think of the Christians as saying? You know, I voted for the platform that would protect freedoms, not because I love. And this is tricky because we easily make luxury and comfort idols, right? Yeah. But let's say we really do have pure hearts and just say, you know, it's not that I love luxury and comfort, mm-hmm. but I, I am, as a Christian, trying to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. I don't want suffering to come, not just for Christians, but for anybody that can deviate from whoever the powers might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would, you, how would you respond to that or give me some input on that I don't find anything wrong with what you've said, especially because of how thoughtful you were in going in to do it. And that's the critical component. If you're submitting yourself to scripture the way I know you already do, because we know each other, and that's where you arrived, that's the conclusion you arrived, I don't see anything wrong with that. Hmm. And Christian liberty is a real thing, and it extends all the way to our civic duties. So if that's what the Holy Spirit was talking to you about, and that's where the emphasis was for you, I don't see anything innately wrong with voting that way. Where I see a problem is when it's the willful blindness of not submitting yourself to the scriptures and just kind of blanket, hey, I think that this party represents me well enough, let's just keep going with it. And here's why I have this problem is because the 1856 election that set the stage for the abolition of slavery was the first time our country got so fed up with the two-party system that they all voted for the brand new third party. It's the third party called Republican Mm -hmm. with a candidate that then became Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. So I just don't, it's the, it's the willful blindness that I would like to, it's, it's the, it's the, the laziness kind of where we allow political pundits to inform us what the Christian duty is. Mm -hmm. I don't like that political pundits are not to do that. We are to submit ourselves to the person that says what our civic duty is. And it needs to happen on an individual level. So the fact that you were that thoughtful, I would never come to you and be like, nah. I would be like, go, 
do it. Be obedient. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Because I don't know what God's got in store. And I don't know how Christ is moving America. And I never will. All I've got is submission and obedience. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry that that's not as satisfying as it could be. But I don't, I don't see a problem with that. It's when people are being willfully disobedient by never submitting themselves to the Bible. They never mm. pray about it. It's, that's where I see problems. Yeah. And that's why I think some of the idols and some of the pictures that you saw, um, for example, I'll show you this. I brought it with me. This is the American Patriots Bible. Oh. Yeah. Um, this is very well intended. Very well intended. Done by, well, I believe, genuine believers but it's blasphemy because it's taking the scriptures and it's using the scriptures to promote something that the scriptures do not specifically promote. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at this stuff and go, okay, if this is being produced for the masses by well-intended Christians and they're willing to commit functionally, and I'm gonna say it, it's blasphemy. Um, and I know that's harsh. But it is. Mm -hmm. And if your own apologist can't call this stuff out on the floor, man, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, it's when I'm seeing this stuff that I go, yeah. we got to talk about this. we got to get real detailed about what's going on in here and how mm -hmm. our hearts are reasoning things out. And maybe, and this is me talking about myself, half the time that I took to take this was me just going, how do I isolate whether or not I'm telling the truth? Right or I'm my authentic witness and what am I doing to submit myself, which is why you spent the vast majority of this talk inside of my brain. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's all I got. I can't go further because I don't mm -hmm. think the scriptures will allow me to. I'd like to. There's a big part of me that wants to just start browbeating politics, mm -hmm. but I can't do that. I would be stepping outside of my role. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Two more questions and we'll call it good, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. I just wanted to, add, this is completely different than what you're talking about. Totally fine. But, you know, when you're talking about progressive Christianity, and I kind of feel like like people, and I don't want to make a specific, but like our youth today, and even like 20s and 30s, are like, there's some crazy stuff happening. Oh, yeah. And like... I mean, I've seen, like, Abraham Piper, you know, like, the yes. TikTok stuff and everything. Yep. I mean, I'm off social media now, but I'm reading about it. Oh, yeah, it's so And sad. a lot of, like, Christian singers, and, mm -hmm. and I just learned about this woke stuff recently, too. And so I wondered if you could, like, speak to some of that and maybe speak to, like, how to deal with these kids and because they're being fed so many lies and they've lived with social media their whole lives mm -hmm. and they just, like, it's all this social justice and they think they're making this big statement and they're mm -hmm. really all just being the same. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if you could just speak to that. Sure. You will never be able to anticipate everything that'll come up, especially with the progressive stuff. Yeah. It, and I'm a fairly optimistic person. I am not optimistic about our future, especially for our youth, because they're all about this stuff. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. What you're describing is called deconstruction, or what mm -hmm. they're calling deconstruction, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a bunch of, of Christians getting up and saying, well, no, none of this is real. This is all fraud, and I'm completely disillusioned, and here's why, X, Y, and Z, and making these videos. Tons of contents out there. Um, but it, it, and I, I mean this kindly, and I mean this not knowing these individuals personally, 
but when I have personally witnessed deconstruction and walked with people personally with this, it becomes extremely evident that they never were Christians to begin with and had no idea. And so what they're really deconstructing is Christendom or cultural Christianity, which is the rational thing to deconstruct because it's a fraud. So they're actually extremely reasonable and they're being very honest. And the focus, and I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, the fear of your own children, for example, or the, yeah. the, child, the youth, how do you deal with this? My, the way I handle this is I focus on what authentic Christianity is and I browbeat them on it. Because just like when you teach a teller at a bank how to identify false currency, you don't, inter you don't just give them a tons of false currency at all. You hand them a real currency and you make them study it, feel it, smell it, take a look at the watermarks. Because if you know the real thing, it doesn't matter what comes through those doors. If it's not this, it's not this. And so it's, you're, you're safe that way in that you've taught them what they need to be able to, whatever comes through that door, it doesn't matter. That's my recommendation. Yeah. Last question? Sure. Thanks. Um, I'm just wondering how you would go about reconciling dominionism with the biblical mandate to go forth and make disciples of all nations. I don't think they're the same thing. I just want to be able to articulate why they're not. Like, you want me to step into the, like, be a dominionist, for yeah. example, and try to defend the position? Yeah, well, they're, they're going to use that exact scripture to say, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And these are believers, and I want to make sure that's clear. This is, I, I, don't, I don't mean to intend, I think it's fairly evident based on how I spoke to you tonight that I, I'm pretty encamped in the two kingdoms position personally. I don't, I'm not persuaded by dominionism. Um, but these are believers, and, and, I guess the only way that I can see to handle that personally is to focus on the fact that dominionism has not existed and for, for the entire history of Christianity. It's a relatively new movement when you look at the rest of the believers. And so I would start with, if that's how we're supposed to interpret that scripture, and we have hundreds and hundreds of years of Christians hearing from the same Holy Spirit as the one that we're hearing from now, why are we coming to a brand new understanding of that scripture? And see what they say. Now, I don't really encounter a lot of dominionists in this area. I can encounter the mentality when people are trying to describe what they're doing. Um, and for the most part, that the, the Seven Mountain Mandate stuff, the New Apostolic Reformation stuff, I'm usually teaching against most of that material, personally. So I just don't encounter it a lot here to deal with, personally. I have a colleague who is fairly theonomist that I could talk to you and I could show you some of the detailed arguments on, on YouTube and I'll give those to you if you wish. Because um, some of the guys that I put up there, for example, um, I've noticed that guys like James White and Jeff Durbin recently have started to move in those circles and they're extremely articulate members of the body of Christ that would probably be able to do a better job than I ever could. To, to, to understand that position. And I'm sorry, I don't mean that as a cop-out. I just, I'm, I don't want to misrepresent it because these are brothers and sisters in Christ who are trying to come to the scriptures honestly and walk it out. Um, so yeah, check out, check out, um, I put Wilson up there, didn't I? 
Yeah, okay. His stuff, he's, he's like the, the, the spearhead for this whole movement, the theonomy movement. And then Rish Rushduni, which his stuff is right here. If you really want to read in detail what the argument is, that's who you need. Um, pass that, that's it. But there are podcasts. I can give you more details after if you want. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, would you guys thank Anna? It is my understanding that you will not be leaving immediately as no. we dismiss, but you'll be hanging around because yep. some of these questions are like really personal and it affects family mm -hmm. and relationships have been severed um, and it's been very difficult and some of this stuff is really personal. So you might not have felt uh, comfortable speaking right. into the microphone and that is right. totally understandable. Anna uh, is eager to answer questions. So you're welcome to linger around. Uh, before we dismiss though, one more question for you, Anna. Uh, what are we doing uh, a month from now? We do, we, our, our third yes yeah, yeah. we're gonna do something really light because I don't want to I don't want to deal with I don't want to deal with content like that again so like real lightly we're gonna deal with if God knows the future and the future is bound by God's providence then how do we have free will Do you remember the date for that? Uh, I don't. It's the end of May. It's the end of May. It's four yeah, Sundays it's from like, today. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Sam, do you remember? No. I don't remember. I'm sorry. I'm sure the there will be. The 23rd. Thank you. Once again, Natasha <laughs> comes you, through Natasha. in the clutch. Yeah, 23rd of May. <laughs> do you have anything else for us? Nope. Come and talk to me if you need me. I love you all. I'll see you next month. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. Okay.